Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Daniel. Howdy, WCC. It's good to see everybody today. I'm continuing a sermon series on Christianity and the culture. So for a number of times, a number of Sundays, we've been thinking about the culture. And I keep saying this, that, that it is my heart's desire for us to want, I want us to understand the culture really better than the culture understands itself. And I'm hoping as we go through this series on Christianity and culture that we'll be able to think about what's happening in our world today and think about it in a clear way and how it affects us as Christians. Um, I want us to be able to spot lies around us because this is having a massive impact. It's not just out there. It's, it's affecting us. It's affecting the church. Um, I saw just, just yesterday there was a study. It was Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway did a study on the state of theology in America. And these are people who call themselves evangelical Christians. And I saw this. Get this. 37% of people who call themselves evangelical Christians believe that gender is not something that God gives you. Gender is a choice that you have. Almost 40% of evangelical Christians think, and we'll talk about this, psychological self, that I get to decide my gender, that God doesn't determine my gender. So this is having a huge effect on us. Um, also, in this sermon series, I'm not just interested in what is happening around us. Really what I'm interested in is why. Why are the things in our culture happening? So I think we have a number of slides, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to put the guys to really the test today, and they're going to do the best they can. I've got a ton of slides, but the first one's called culture. If we could put that up there, the culture slide. I think we also have handouts maybe back there, and there's some over here too. I'll also, in the email this week, I'll send out these PDFs so you can get, uh, you can get an idea about what we're doing. And really, a lot of what I'm doing in the sermon series is kind of just making my way around these slides. I'm talking about different aspects of, of things we're looking at in the culture. So this slide is culture, and notice everything is directed inward. The, the top, if you see the top of the slide, it says, my identity comes from within, my thoughts and desires. That's who I am, the inner psychological self. Also to the left, it says that other people should always affirm me in who I am. Also, God should affirm me. If we have the slide called Christianity, you, you'll see one of the differences, or actually a lot of differences. Christianity teaches, and you see at the top of this, that my identity is found outside myself. It's not within my, it's not within my head. My identity is found outside myself. It, it is found in my relationship with God and relationship with other people. Also notice the arrows are going in, in both directions from the self. We're called to love God. We're called to love upward, right? We're called to love outward to other people. We make commitments to others. Also, they love us and they commit to us. And this is the way God works. Also, God molds us. We don't just stay fixed and I make all the choices. God molds us and shapes us and grows us. And also, God uses other people. He uses the church to grow us as well. If we go back to the slide called culture, thank you guys. Um, at the bottom you see, and this is what we're going to talk about today, about dignity and freedom. If you bottom you see that the culture teaches that, that our meaning and our dignity comes through freedom and autonomy. Our dignity comes from within, within our minds, choices and desires. So we make choices 
to pursue happiness and self-fulfillment. And we're taught that we should follow our desires, you know, follow your dreams. Don't let anyone tell you to, to, you know, put you in your place or stop you from following your dreams or desires. So making choices, doing what I want to do, this is what our culture teaches. So today I want to talk really about freedom and dignity, freedom and dignity. So the title of the sermon is this, it's freedom from and freedom to, and we do have the big idea of the sermon is, is true freedom and dignity, we'll talk a lot about this, but true freedom and dignity means being from something bad, it's not just being free to do what I want to do, it means, means free from something bad and free to something good, so freedom from and freedom to. I'd also say this, I'm going to cover a lot of stuff today, and it's um, a lot of stuff I've been thinking about, but you guys probably have not been thinking about, so I'm going to move pretty fast so I would encourage you, I would encourage you to go back during the week and listen to the sermon again. Because I, as I said, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff and we're going to be moving fast. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon online this week. All right, first an observation about freedom. Greg's sermon last week from Galatians 5 was a perfect lead-in because he addressed this classic passage about freedom. And many places in the Bible, God gives us these promises of freedom. And something you can do that's funny, if you ever Google Bible verses about freedom, the first thing that'll come up is a picture of some lady in a wheat field with her arms raised. It says, like, freedom, okay? I don't know why she's standing in a wheat field. But, uh, but there are a lot of Bible verses about freedom. So Galatians 5.1, this is what Greg preached on last week, for freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Okay, so the Bible has these promises. Here are some other ones. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Yeah, we've got them up there. 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I'd ask you to turn to John 8. We're going to look at these verses. Turn, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. This is an awesome chapter. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing. Jesus really has some profound, awesome teachings about freedom, about slavery, about desires, all these things that we've been thinking about. If you go to John 8, start in verse 31. John 8, 31. I'm going to read, I'm going to read through 31 through 38, but we're going to focus on just a few verses. So this is John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him. This is funny to me. They say, we are offsprings of Abraham. Were were the people of Israel ever in slavery in Egypt? Maybe were they ever in slavery? But they say, we are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, and we'll talk about this later too. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, here we go again with freedom. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offsprings of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. He's talking about the devil. So, so 
Jesus is talking about this freedom. So again, we see these promises. If you abide in Jesus' words, he says, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Okay? So the Bible frequently talks about freedom. But here's the thing. Think about this. To most people in our culture, does being a Christian sound like freedom to them? Does being a Christian sound like freedom to most people nowadays? No. No. It sounds like bondage. In our culture, Christianity sounds like an oppressive religion. It's like this. You mean you have to go to church and the Bible tells you all these things that you can't do? Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do that. When people hear this, that doesn't sound like freedom. It sounds like slavery. Christianity sounds like oppression. And here's why this matters. And this matters to me personally. Because many times I have given proofs for Christianity. It's called apologetics. Evidence for the faith. Evidence showing that Christianity is true. But one of the things I've noticed is this. It's very frustrating to me. But one of the things I've noticed is most of the time I'll give this evidence. And most of the time non-Christians don't care. They just don't care at all. For example, I, I love talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To me, it is overwhelming. It is clear that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, never died again, ascended into heaven. I think the evidence shows that clearly. But most people don't care. They just don't care. And so I've been wondering, why is that? Well, Ron Highfield is a professor and writer. He's helped me here, and he's written a book called God, Freedom, and Human Dignity. And what he says is that people don't care if Christianity is true And the reason they don't care is because they don't think Christianity is good. They don't care if it's true because they think Christianity is bad. That's why they don't care about the evidence to show that it's true. Now, here's the next question. This fits in with the sermon. Why do people think that Christianity is bad? There may be lots of reasons, but this is a huge one. They think the God of the Bible is bad because they think he is opposed to their freedom. As I said, in our culture, being a Christian, going to church, obeying God's word, that does not sound like freedom. It sounds like bondage. It sounds like slavery. So today, I want us to think about true freedom, what freedom really is. If we go to the side called the true self, do we have that? This true self. Again, this is one of the handouts. If you look, on the right side is culture, and on the left is Christianity. If you go down to purpose, They're around on the knees of the self guy. Uh, It says, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? And you can see on the left, Christianity teaches, in another place we've talked about, Christianity teaches that the meaning of life is to have an eternal love relationship with God, to bring glory to him. But also you can see there that God uses us to expand his kingdom. So this is what we're made for, to be in relationship with him, and he uses us to expand his kingdom. If you look at the culture, what does the culture say about purpose and the meaning of life on the right side? The purpose is self-fulfillment. The purpose is happiness. The meaning of life is being happy. Also, you can see on the very bottom left, Christianity teaches that we have dignity. It's about dignity. We have dignity. We have worth because we belong to our creator. And we're loved by Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. Our dignity, in other words, comes from outside of us because we're loved by Christ and we belong to him. What about the culture? What does our culture say about dignity? On the bottom right, you can see our culture says this about dignity, about worth, and this is what we'll talk about. It comes from freedom, from autonomy. I have dignity because I have the freedom to do what I want to do. 
And I have the freedom to define myself. I can define my gender. I can define anything. That's where my dignity comes from. The freedom comes from within my mind, my will, to define who I am. And I don't want any limits, okay? I don't want any limits on this. Notice on the right side, the whole thing about culture, it's all centered on self. It's the psychological self. It's self-fulfillment. It's self-happiness. Defining myself, making my choices. And the result is this, and we've talked about this a lot, that we get the self-centered world that we live in. Everything revolves around me. I'm the center. And because of this me-centered world, here's what's happened. Here's what happens next. We instinctively start to believe that God is irrelevant, that God is not necessary. This actually began back in the Enlightenment when people began to believe that God is completely unnecessary for a flourishing life. So the result of this, hundreds of years later, is we get this individualistic world that we live in now. So, in our culture, people believe that central to who we are is the idea of self. The self is the center, not God. Also, God is not seen, as I said, as a source of freedom. God is not seen as a source of dignity. It's the exact opposite. God is seen as an obstacle to my dignity. God is seen as an obstacle to my freedom. If we go back to the slide called culture, again, thank you guys, culture, at the bottom it says this, that dignity comes through freedom and autonomy to define my own meaning and make my choices, make choices to pursue self-fulfillment, and I should follow my desires. People pretend, and I keep stressing this, people pretend that living for self will lead to happiness. That's what we believe instinctively, that living for self will lead to happiness, but it doesn't. It's a lie. Living for self doesn't lead to happiness for you or for anybody else. It leads to conflict. It leads to frustration. It leads to fighting. That's, in fact, with you see the little explosions we have between the self and other people, that's why. Because when I'm always wanting stuff, and people are wanting stuff too, we're competing, we're fighting, because we all want to get, please ourselves, right? That's, so that's why we have these little explosions right there. Also, and this is what I'm talking about today, in this me-centered world, not only are people obstacles to my freedom and happiness, but God is seen as an obstacle to my freedom and happiness. And again, that's why we have a little explosion between the self and, and God, okay? So in our culture, God is an obstacle. Our culture believes that dignity comes through making choices. And in our culture, really, what we, what we believe is that I am pure will. Also, God is viewed as pure will. So it's, it's an oppressive image of God. And, it, and this is what it does. It makes atheism very attractive, right? If there's no God, then I'm free to expand and I can be central. And I, I, there's, so, so this makes atheism very attractive because atheism looks like freedom. In other words, God is like Zeus. You know, Zeus, you ever studied Zeus like these Greek gods, you know? Zeus is, is will and power. That's all he is. And that's the way people think of God today. So I want to do something. God tells me not to do it. God is opposed to my freedom. God is opposed to my dignity. God is just this angry Zeus. Okay, so he's an obstacle. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. And I think we have a slide on this too. When God is viewed as an obstacle to a person's freedom, people tend to react in three different ways. Indifference, defiance, or subservience. And guys, I'll just ask you to leave the slide up over the next session when I'm talking about this. So first, indifference. 
If God is an obstacle to my freedom, how do I respond? Some people respond with indifference. Just, I don't care. I don't even think about God. I just immerse myself in the day-to-day things. I ignore all thoughts of God. You know people like this or you like this. Anytime I start to think about God, I just suppress those thoughts. I spend all my life thinking about pleasure, fun, sex, gaming, whatever. Or I spend all my time thinking about being successful or at least looking successful. Or I'm obsessed with work or money. Or I put all my efforts into things I do. Going to the lake, next vacation. I spend all my energy on pursuing authority and power. How I can climb up the corporate ladder. Or I spend all my energy in my family, investing in my children. Or I spend all my energy in in getting people to admire me. Or politics. I can spend all my life devoted to politics and political causes and political power. Whatever. This... The list goes on, right? The list is totally endless. We spend no time thinking about God or why I'm here. I spend no time thinking about what happens when I die. I just suppress all those things. I don't think about those things. If I have any thoughts about God, I just think it makes no difference in my life at all. So this is indifference to God. God is not relevant to my life. Who cares? God is an obstacle to my happiness, so I won't spend any time thinking about it. All of my attention is focused on the things of the world. So that's one way people respond to God, indifference. Here's another way people respond to God when they see him as an obstacle to freedom is is defiance. This is the angry response to God. This often shows up in a person being an atheist. So I deny the very existence of God. I think about this with the so-called new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris They're basically saying, think about this now, they're basically saying, there is no God, and I hate him, right? (laughs) God does not exist, and I can't stand him. That's That's the irony of this whole thing. Why are they so mad, right? In our culture, the defiant person views God as my ultimate enemy. Why? Because God tells me things to do that I don't want to do. He's a bully. He's a competitor. He is pure will. He's the almighty tyrant. Remember, dignity comes through making choices, following my desires. I'm will. God is will. This is an oppressive image of God, again, which makes atheism very attractive. He's power. He's will. He doesn't seem loving. And this is why defiance feels like dignity. Because if God is bad, if God is a threat to my freedom and dignity, then defiance feels like dignity. He's not worthy of my love and trust. That's what this attitude says. So the thought goes on like this. The only way I can have dignity and freedom is to remove God, to be defiant. I'm in conflict with God. There's a poem called Invictus. You ever heard this poem, Invictus? And it sums up this view well. The last stanza goes like this. It says, it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll. In other words, Jesus says, you know, talking about the, following the gate, the path, the, the path to life, or the, the scroll, the old writings about punishment, about God's judgment. He says it matters not about that. It matters not about that at all. The last line is this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. For the defiant person, dignity is found in screaming at God. Shaking my fist at God, saying, I'm the captain of my soul, not you. I'm in charge, not you, God. I don't have to listen to you all at all. This is the defiant response to God. 
So you got indifference and you got defiance. Again, remember, we're thinking about God being an obstacle to freedom. The last one is this, and this is the strange one, but it's, it's subservience. Subservience. And what I mean by this, it, it often shows up as being religious. But I'll be religious so that I can appease God because I want God to give me good stuff. There's not love and affection for God. It, 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 but this is kind of the default religion throughout history. So this is a religious person, and they think this way. God has all the good things that I don't have. God has all the power that I want. And God gets to do whatever he wants, but I'm limited. I'm restricted, and I want what God has. Sometimes he'll give me stuff that I want, but only grudgingly. So I have to beg. Or if I'm a good boy, if I'm a religious person, then God will give me the stuff that I want. So this can, sometimes this can show up as legalism, where there's not much love for God. Instead, it's a bunch of rules. I kind of resent God, but I follow his rules, so he'll give me good stuff. But again, there's not much love and devotion. So a lot of times it's a a list of rules. Another way, and on the slide, I've got this MTD on the culture slide, MTD. What I mean by that is moralistic therapeutic deism. And that's more common today, I think, than legalism. And what I mean by that moralistic therapeutic deism is this. This view of God is kind of this. God is kind of a therapist, or God can fix my problems. But it's not really about loving him. It's not really about viewing him as glorious and majestic. It's really about him fixing my problems. He's my therapist, so he can take care of my problems. It's about me begging and doing things to make him like me. So I show up for church or whatever, and then he gives me the stuff I want, or he fixes my problems. It looks religious oftentimes. It looks good on the surface, but really it's disgusting because this subservient attitude, this default religion, does not understand this profound truth. And this is what I really want us as a church to understand. God is the good I need. God himself is the highest good. Not the stuff he gives me. This is, this is, and you'll see this in many places in the scriptures. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 1611, you probably know it, Psalm 1611. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Just being with you, that's the best. Being with you, you yourself, Lord, you're the best thing for me. Psalm 84 is another one, showing that God himself is the highest good, and he should be what we seek, not just the stuff he gives. This is Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, see, I want to be in your presence. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Psalm 27, 4 is another one. One thing I have asked of the Lord, it's not stuff. The psalmist doesn't ask for stuff in Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. God is the one who's the best. Just being with you, Lord, that's what my soul longs for. My heart sings for you. You're what I want, Lord. Not the stuff you get. Now, does God give his children good things? Yes, of course. And we should be thankful for those. But we don't love God because he gives us stuff. We love God. We treasure God. We treasure Christ because he himself is the highest good. Jesus Christ himself, he's the one we treasure. Because being in intimate relationship with God, knowing his love, this is what our souls are made for. But in our natural state, we just don't think God is good. Honestly, we think God is withholding good stuff from us. And you know when this began? This began early on, right after creation, right? Garden of Eden. 
Remember this, Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The serpent, the devil was saying it was this. He said, I mean, look at that tree. Look at that good stuff on that tree. And God said, you can't have that. He's withholding that from you. He's not good. He doesn't want what's good for you. And what is Eve? Eve looks at that tree and she's like, that does look good. And God told me I can't have it. So she starts to resent God. She starts to envy God. It starts to be right then, conflict with God, thinking he is withholding stuff from us. But again, the truth is that God himself is the highest possible good. But in our natural state, we don't think this way. We think God is a grouch, right? We think God wants to spoil our fun. We think he wants to take away our freedom. And again, the reason we think this is because we think freedom is doing what we want to do. And God's an obstacle to this. So in this view of freedom, now this is kind of the way we naturally think about freedom. Doing what we want to do. Free from circumstantial or free from external barriers. Circumstantial freedom. And so this is how our culture views freedom. But remember the big idea is this, that true freedom and dignity means being free from something bad and free freedom to something good. For years in Atlanta, I would watch these buses. I don't know if you've ever seen this. They, for years in Atlanta, they did. They took these buses and they would move prisoners every single day in the morning. They would move them from the Atlanta City Jail. They would be freed from jail. They'd get on these buses and they would move them to a different prison on the other side of town. I don't know why they did that. Maybe they had more room over there during the day. Then that evening, they would take those prisoners back to the jail. So in the morning, they were freed from the Atlanta City Jail. They were freed from jail every single day. But what were they freed to? They were freed to a different prison. That's not freedom. If you're freed from some place and you end up back in a different prison, you're not really free. To have real freedom, to have real dignity, you have to be freed from something, yeah, but you also have to be freed to something. To be truly free, you can't be freed to just anything either. You have to be freed to something good. You can't be freed to another prison. You can't be freed to something bad. That's not freedom. But again, most of us think of freedom as just freedom to do what I want to do. But the issue is, what am I free to? That's the question. I may be free to do whatever I want to do, but what am I free to? Think, think of it this way. If I want to do things that are bad for me, if I want to do things that are bad for my soul, am I really free? Or am I a slave to my desires? Is an alcoholic free? Is a meth addict free? Is a porn addict free? Is an anorexic person free to do what she wants to do? Well, in one sense, they're all free, right? Because they're doing what they want to do. They're free to act on their desires. No one's holding a gun to the alcoholic's head and said, you have to drink, right? No one's forcing them to do that. In one sense, they're free to do what they want to do. But being free... To do what you want to do, is that really free? Remember, to be free, you got to be free from something bad to something good. The alcoholic is free from external constraints, but he's not free to something good. Why? Because his desires are enslaving him. 
His desires are the problem. It's the want to that's the problem. Now, let me clarify something. I I don't want to go too far off the ditch on something. Even for Christians, let's be realistic, sin is very powerful. And in this life, we will have sinful desires. And And it's depressing, but it's true. Even for us as Christians, our sinful desires are often so strong that we feel like we can be enslaved to them. Sometimes it gets discouraging, and we feel like we will never overcome certain sins. But here's some good news. The fact that you're struggling with sin, that doesn't mean you're not a real Christian. In fact, if you're fighting against sin, if you're struggling against sin, that in itself is evidence that you're a real Christian, that you have the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is within you, and then you'll want to fight against sin. So even having the desire to fight against sin, that's evidence of a heart that loves the Lord. And that should encourage you. So again, also if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit, that means actually you're not a slave to sin, even if it feels like it. You're not a slave to sin. Don't believe that lie. Because by God's grace, by his power dwelling in you, you can grow in overcoming your sinful desires. We're not slaves to sin. Instead, we're free to grow in holiness. We've been set free, free to goodness, free to intimacy with God. But again, I keep stressing this, to be truly free, you have to be free to something good, right? If you're free from one prison to another, you haven't experienced real freedom. If you're free to do what you want, in other words, if you're free to do what you want, but your desires are leading you down a path toward the destruction of your soul, That's not being free to something good. And that means you're not really free. We looked at John 8. Look back at John 8. Look at John 8, uh, 34. Listen how profound. I'm so thankful that Jesus gives us this. Look at John 8, 34. Jesus answered them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If your desires are forcing you to do things that are bad for your soul, that's not real freedom, and that's not real dignity. This is 2 Peter 2.19. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Peter 2.19, he's talking about, Peter's talking about false teachers. Here, we got it up on the screen. And listen to how profound this is. Peter is talking about these false teachers. He says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. It's the same today. Peter says they promise them freedom. It's the same today. People say you can have freedom if you free yourself from the chains of religion, right? You can have freedom if you get rid of God. You can have freedom if you abandon the church. Religion is oppressive. Break free of it, and you can have real freedom. So they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption and their defiance against God or their indifference to God is leading them down a path toward the destruction of their souls that's not freedom rebellion against God is not freedom and rebellion against God is not dignity it's corrupting it's depressing it's soul destroying it's dehumanizing that's what rebellion against God leads to that's not freedom To have real freedom, we need to know, think about this, to have real freedom, we need to know what's good for our souls. And we need to have the power to have our sinful desires changed. I'll say it again, to have real freedom, we need to know what's good for our souls, 
And we need to have the power to have our sinful desires changed. This is real freedom. Freedom from evil desires. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the bad. Freedom to the good. And the ultimate good is God himself. He's the highest good. He's the one we're made for. Jesus is the only one who can give us true happiness. God is the only one who can give us true eternal joy. Listen, God is not in competition with your freedom. God is the only one who can give you freedom. God is the one who loves you. God is the one who made you for himself. You need to be free to be in relationship with him. And Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy your soul. That's real freedom. It's freedom from self and freedom to God. It's freedom from me and freedom to Jesus Christ. It's freedom from Satan and freedom to the Holy One who loves me. This is freedom. This is dignity. And this is what leads to true joy. True freedom is freedom from soul-destroying sin and freedom to know God. Freedom from condemnation and freedom of being loved by God. And when the Holy Spirit gives you life and you put your faith in Christ, then you are completely freed from the dominion of the devil, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. You're freed to belonging to Jesus. Through the Spirit, we are freed to holiness, freed to everlasting joy, free to be, free to be members of God's family, to be sons and daughters in our father's family, in our dad's family. And we're free to enjoy the inheritance of the resurrection life to come on a new earth. We're free to be loved by Jesus Christ forever. That's real freedom. Real freedom is freedom to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's freedom from self, freedom to be what we're made for. And that's intimate fellowship with God through our union with Jesus Christ, with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit forever. Now, I want us to look back at some of the verses we looked at before, that 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, see how they sound now after we've been talking. 2 Corinthians 3, 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is real freedom, being free from slavery to sin and being free, free to loving God. Again, John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You're set free because of Jesus. You're free. John 8, 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I'm going to talk more about freedom in the next sermon, but let me close with this. If you realize that you've been indifferent to God or defiant or subservient, that's not faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's not trusting God, and you know it. It's not loving the God who made you. And you may think that Jesus is not worthy of your trust. You may think Jesus is not worthy of your love. You may think that, but that's a lie. Jesus is more worthy of your trust. Jesus is more worthy of your love than you could ever imagine. You may think God is a threat to your freedom. Let me tell you something. God is not a threat to your freedom in any way. Jesus is not a threat to your freedom in any way. In fact, Jesus is the only way to true freedom. He's the only one who can set you free. And when the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Listen, if you realize that you've been viewing God as a threat to your freedom, if you realize you haven't been viewing God as the highest good, listen, cry out to him. Cry out to God. Cry out to Jesus Christ and see the price that he paid for you when he went to the cross. 
He came to us in love. He did not have, you know, God did not have to save us, right? The father did not have to send his son. He did not gain a lot by getting us. God wasn't lonely. He wasn't needy. He did that out of an abundance of his love. The father sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to receive the judgment that should have come to us when he went to the cross. And he did this because he loves his people. And he did this also to set us free. So cry out to Christ. He's worthy of your trust and love. Cry out and ask the Holy Spirit to come upon you and give you spiritual life. I'd say this too. Just give yourself completely to the Lord. Receive his love today. Place yourself completely in the care of God. Place yourself completely in the care of Jesus Christ. And you can know true freedom. I'm going to paraphrase. This is, I'm going to paraphrase something Charles Spurgeon wrote about. He wrote about freedom. He says this. It's the believer's privilege to have access at all times to his heavenly father. You are free to that. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. It doesn't matter. You can still ask for forgiveness and you will still receive pardon from your father. You're free to that. You have permission to approach the father's throne at all times. Exercise your right, believer, and live up to your privilege. You are free to that. You have free access to everything that is treasured up in Jesus Christ. You have free access to that. It doesn't matter what you need. There is fullness of supply in Christ, and it's for you. You are free to that. And Spurgeon says, oh, what freedom is yours. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from judgment, and freedom to God's promises, freedom to the throne of grace, and at last, freedom to enter heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we praise you for your goodness toward us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus. I do pray, Lord, that people here, my church family, would see the freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. For someone here who has been defiant or subservient, or indifferent, I do pray, Lord, that you'd work in their hearts and they would see that true joy and true freedom and true dignity comes only through being in a relationship with you. Jesus, help us to see that you're not opposed to our freedom or dignity. You're the source of freedom. You're the source of dignity. I pray you'd help us to see that, Lord. I know people's eyes are blinded I know people's eyes are blinded. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you remove those and allow them to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, work in hearts today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.